years. Remember me bringing you into the promised land. Remember Jericho. Remember these things that I've done. Again, not just so you can remember them, but to give you hope for now and in the future. In the midst of this uncertainty, an anchor or a fuel for hope is what God has done in the past. And Christmas can be the same thing for us. We want to look back, but this 2,000 years, this birth of Jesus, but Jesus is not sweet baby Jesus anymore. He's grown up, and he's the King of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. And as you're in the midst of uncertainty in your life, remembering, looking back, can give you fuel for hope for what God can do now and in the future. So that's kind of where we're going with this Advent deal. It's not just about looking to the past, but looking to the past as a way of fueling joy and hope in us for the present. So we're looking at Luke 2. We're going to start in verse 8. We'll be looking at this passage over the course of the next four weeks. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel of the Lord said to them, Do not be afraid. That's what we're going to look at, that phrase. Do not be afraid. The rest of the passage I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. So for us today, we're going to look at this phrase, do not be afraid. So you've got shepherds pretty low on the totem pole. They're uh, peasants, not highly regarded in their society. You've got the biggest headline in the history of headlines being proclaimed, and it's to these guys, which again, I think just shows us God's values, his priorities, his way of doing things doesn't necessarily line up with how we would do things. He doesn't call CNN or Fox News. He doesn't go to the synagogue, to the temple where, he doesn't go to the temple where all the religious leaders are who are anticipating the coming of the Messiah. He doesn't go to Herod's palace and say, listen, there's a new sheriff in town. He goes out to a field to a group of shepherds who most people are probably not going to pay attention to. An angel appears, most likely Gabriel. If you read back through Luke 2, Gabriel shows up to Zechariah, says your wife's going to have this son, John the Baptist. Gabriel shows up to Mary, says, you're going to bear Jesus, and then most likely same angel Gabriel shows up in this field and says, here's some good news for you. This idea of the glory of God, I think that's something we intuitively maybe grasp, a little difficult to define. In the Old Testament, the word for glory means to be heavy. It has, carries this idea of significance or weight. In the New Testament, the word has more the idea of, of honor or reputation. You kind of put those things together. Get the glory of God is really about his royal majesty. And oftentimes, um, oftentimes when the glory of God uh, manifests itself, there's light is associated with that. You can see that in Matthew, I think it's 17. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up onto a mountain and he's transfigured. It says his clothes become bright as light. His face shines like the sun. A cloud descends in the Bible. In the Old Testament, a cloud is typically associated with the glory of God. This voice speaks and says, this is my son, listen to him. Everybody falls on their face and is terrified, which again is a, a typical response when you're in the presence of God. People tend to fall down in fear. So that's kind of what's going on here in this passage. And then what we want to focus on is the shepherd's reactions. They're terrified. And the angel says to them, don't be terrified. Don't be afraid. It's the same root word in both of those things. If you were to read through from Genesis to Revelation, the concept of fear runs all the way through. I think maybe at Genesis 15 might be the first time the idea of fear appears in the Bible. It runs all the way through to the end of Revelation. And there's two main threads or two main um, kind of boxes of content. One is fear the Lord. 
That's a repeated command, particularly in the Old Testament, we're told to fear God. And fear in that sense doesn't mean be afraid of, it doesn't mean be scared of, it doesn't mean run away from. It means something moving in the direction of respect is probably the closest word that we all use. Uh, it's, it's more than respect, but that's probably the closest thing that we have to it. Or the word revere, I don't know that anybody really uses that word, moves, moves closer. Uh, it's respect tinged with awe. Uh, sometimes maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon or you know, Mount Everest or something, you've looked up and seen a bunch of stars, and sometimes that can, people can, can revere that. They can revere these wonders in nature, and it can cause them to be kind of awestruck. Uh, that moves, again, in this direction of fearing the Lord, but there's a relational element, as there is with everything with God in the Bible. It's, it's something along the lines of reverential trust, um, worshipful trust, if you like that word better. It's not, wow, this is an amazing thing. I'm going to stand back and take a picture and be in awe of it. It's, wow, this is an amazing thing, and this amazing thing is going to cause me to trust the one who's done it. That's how fear always works in the in the Bible. It's this fear of God that leads us to trust him. Because I'm so in awe of who he is and what he's done, I have confidence to put my faith and trust in him and actually do what he says. A few scriptures that might help paint the picture. Deuteronomy 10:12. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. There you see it worked into this relational context. 1 Samuel 12, 24, But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Again, you have this idea of I'm in awe of what God has done, and that's going to lead me to fear him, to respect him, to worshipfully trust him. Psalm 33, 8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. So there's that idea, uh, again, of fearing him as reverence awe. So we're supposed to fear the Lord. That's not something that we really talk about here. I don't know where you come from in terms of your uh, relationship with God or your understanding of the Bible. I don't know if that's a concept that's familiar to you or not. But again, some people would say that's the heart of what it means to be one of God's children is to fear him. If you're fearing him, then you've got everything. If you're not fearing him, then you're missing a pretty vital component of what it means to be in a relationship with God, and throughout particularly Psalms and Proverbs, there are all of these benefits that are uh, ascribed to the people who fear the Lord. I'm just going to read these quickly. They'll be on the screen. If you want the scriptures, I can give them, I can give them to you later. Psalm 33:18. the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Those who fear God lack nothing. The Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God is the help and the shield of those who fear him. God will bless those who fear him, small and great alike. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. The fear of the Lord adds length to life. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. The fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom. The fear of the Lord, excuse me, through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. The fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. That's a great one right there. That might be one for you to memorize this week. The fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. Humility and the fear of the Lord bring wealth and honor and life. You see these benefits that accrue to those who fear the Lord. It's everything that we're looking for 
in a relationship with God. He hears you. He's your help. He's your shield. He's with you. He blesses you. He watches over you, watches out for you. Fearing the Lord, that's the beginning of wisdom. Many of us, we're looking for wisdom. How do I know what decision to make amidst all of these choices? Fear of the Lord will guide you into that. Again, this idea, we're, looking, we're talking some about peace and joy and hope. The fear of the Lord leads to life. And for those of us who fear him, rest, we're contented and we're untouched by trouble. So you have this picture or this stream in the Bible, this thread. Fear God. It's good for you. It's good for me to fear him, to live in worshipful trust of him. Then there's this other thread, this other box of content that says don't fear anything else. I'm supposed to fear God. I'm not supposed to fear anything else. And fear under this umbrella is, is what we think of. It's being afraid of something, being scared of something, being terrified of something, running from something. That's all under this umbrella. And the Bible says don't do that. You don't need to run from anything. You don't need to be terrified. You don't need to be scared of anything. If you'll fear God, then you don't have to fear anything else that's over here. If you don't fear God, then you're going to fear something else over here. That's pretty much guaranteed. But if we'll live in worshipful trust of God, then nothing is going to put us to flight. There's nothing that has to scare us, that has to cause us to run away. A couple of verses. Isaiah 8 says this. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. Proverbs 29, 25. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Matthew 10, 28. Don't fear those who kill the body but are, un, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both body and soul. That's God. You get in this picture. Fear him. Don't fear anyone. Don't fear anything else. Throughout particularly the Old Testament, God tells people repeatedly, you don't need to fear circumstances. You don't need to fear the unknown. You don't need to fear your enemies. You don't need to fear the consequences of obeying me. Just fear me. Don't worry. Don't fear anything else. So those are the two main teachings in the Bible. Fear God. Revere him. Worshipful trust towards him. Don't be afraid of. Don't run from anything else. And again, if we'll fear God, we don't have to fear anything else. If we don't, if I don't live in worshipful trust for, with him, or uh, worshipful trust towards him, guaranteed, I'm going to be running away from something. So tell me this. I got ten common fears. I want to hear what you think. Give me a fear. Hold on. Too many at one time. Public speaking. Yes, hold on. I got to find it. That was actually, it's fear of others is how it's... Um, classified, public speaking being one of the specific things under fear of others. 15 million adults have some form of social phobia. It can, they can get sweats over eating or drinking in front of other people, general anxiety um, when around most anyone other than their family begins in childhood, usually around the age of 13, which if you'll know, that's right when you're hitting middle school, so that's probably... While that happens, fear of public speaking is more commonly reported than the fear of death, if you can imagine that. J Jerry Seinfeld said that most people at a funeral would rather be in the casket than delivering the eulogy. <laughs> so that's public speaking. I heard spiders. Did somebody say spiders? That would not have been in my top ten. That actually is in the list. Let me find it. Arachnophobia, women, four times more likely than men to be afraid of spiders. That's why you need us around to smash them. Mission trip, Jillian Cosgrove is taking a group to Suriname. I was talking to her this morning. 
She lived in Suriname for about six months and said a spider the size of her hand came, fell on her head when she was sleeping. So I don't know how many of you that makes want to sign up. But that's that. What else did I hear? Failure. Failure is actually not, it wasn't here. We will talk about it though. Small spaces, I got all kinds of spaces. Fear of multiple spaces, hold on. I've done that one. Opened or confined spaces. 1.8 million Americans over 18 years of old suffer from agoraphobia, I think that's how you say it, which involves intense fear and anxiety of any place or situation where escape might be difficult. That's why they say whether it's claustrophobia, you're afraid of tight spaces, or I guess it's agoraphobia, or you're afraid of open spaces. Either one, it's this idea that I can't get out of here. For some people, it's crowds. I can't figure out how I'm supposed to get out of here, so that causes uh, fear. Rarely develops after 40. Most people pick it up when they're 20, if they're going to have it. What else did I hear? Snakes. I do have snakes. One of the most common phobias, I'm married to a snakeophobe. I think that probably speaks for itself. What else you got? Heights. Bugs. Did somebody say bugs? That kind of fits under arachnophobia. You're right. Some people call it fear of creepy crawly things. I got, what would you say, heights? Oh, that's somewhere here. I might have lost that page. No, I got it. Three to five percent of the population suffers, suffers from this. And they actually did a study, and people who have a fear of heights, when they're on the ground and they look up at a building, they estimate that it's taller than it really is by about 10 feet. And when they're actually on the building looking down, they estimate that it's 40 feet higher than it really is. So there's some legitimacy, I guess, to that. It's not just uh, irrational. What else? I didn't understand that. Dying alone did not make my list. Germs did not make my list. Dark made my list. It's one of the most common fears for, people, for kids. Most kids grow out of it, but sometimes um, it does last through adulthood if left untreated. Water did not make my list. Computers did not. The dentist, the dentist made my list. 19.2 million Americans, 8.7% of the people in this age group, over 18, have some type of phobia or extreme fear of the dentist. Oh, excuse me, 9 to 20% of Americans say they avoid going to the dentist because of anxiety or fear. Full-blown dental phobia is more serious. But many people express, is any, are there any dentists in here? Yeah, that's got to be bad for your self-esteem. Fear of dogs, top 10, every list I looked at. Cynophobia, it's a ferocious-looking one. Usually results from somebody who has been bit or seen someone who's gotten bit. Flying, Absolutely. Uh, 25 million people have some form of fear of flying. For some, it's called aviophobia. For some people, it has to do with the airplane actually crashing. For others, it's the claustrophobia of being in the cabin and not knowing how you're supposed to get out, wondering whether that seat actually floats. Fear of severe weather actually was a top 10 fear. 73% of participants in this study expressed a moderate fear of severe weather, whether that's thunder and lightning or tornadoes. We can be afraid of all kinds of things. Fear is a big deal. It's a big deal, I think, to God it's a big deal because he wants us to be led by his spirit, and fear tends to drive us. There are certain situations where if you're afraid, you're going to live small. It's going to be difficult for you to obey God because you're afraid of the consequences or whatever he's asking you to do 
fear robs us of joy. God, Jesus came to give us full and abundant life. And one of the major ways the enemy comes to steal that abundant life is through the seeds of fear. Not to make any of you feel guilty, but to give you a kind of a context for understanding fear. I want you to see fear as a, the result of a relational deficiency. The reason you're afraid or the reason I'm afraid is because of a relational deficiency between me and the Lord. The areas where I don't trust him are the areas where the weeds of fear sprout. The areas where I do trust him, where I have this, where I fear him, where I have this worshipful trust towards him, in him, I'm not afraid in those areas. The areas where I don't, that's where fear has an open doorway. You can call fear worry, and it's still fear. You can call it anxiety, and it's still fear. You can call it denial, and it's still fear. All of those are just different labels for the same problem, which is I'm running away from this, either physically running away, emotionally running away, that's denial. I'm just going to pretend that that thing is not even out there. All of that is being driven by fear. And if you're driven by fear, you cannot be led by the Spirit. Not overall. I, don't know, I know many of you, and I would not say any of you, you're locked up in fear in every area of your life. But there are certain segments of your life where you do allow fear to run the show. And I would say in those areas, you can't be led by the Spirit. You have no choice but to be driven and that's, the enemy is doing that, and he's going to do so in a way that's going to rob you of your joy. If any of you have ever tried to help somebody learn how to ride a bike or jump off a high dive or do anything like that, you get kind of the fear equation that goes on in people's heads and in their hearts. There's this fear of falling, this fear of getting hurt, and what you want to say if you're a parent is, I, I got you, I, I've got this, you, you can do this. You're going to fall, it's going to hurt some. But the benefit of riding, the joy you'll get from riding, the freedom that you'll feel from jumping off a high dive, it far outweighs the couple of times that you fall down or when you accidentally lean too far forward and do a belly flop or whatever that is. And I think God, a lot of times, as our Heavenly Father, He's looking that same way towards us. He's saying, guys, I got this. What, can you not trust me enough? that if I'm going to put you on the bike, it's okay for you to ride the bike. I don't promise that you're never going to fall off. What I promise is I'm going to be with you even when you do, and you're going to have more fun. This is a full life. This is a joy-filled life. This is an abundant life. I don't want you to live small. Yes, there's risk involved. Yes, you're going to get hurt at times, but the benefit of living a full life far outweighs the risk involved. I don't, he doesn't get frustrated with us because he's a perfect parent. But I think there's that sense in him where it's, it's not directed at us. It's at this situation, this anger at us being afraid of these circumstances and not trusting him enough with them to say, I, I'm all right. I'm going to fear you, God, over fearing these circumstances. So for us, two main umbrellas. I would think just about anything that we're afraid of, you could probably fit under these two main umbrellas. There might be an exception, but uh, probably very rare. Fear of failure and fear of the unknown. Most things that we as adults tend to be afraid of, it's either going to be fear of failure or fear of the unknown. You might have some of those phobies. You might be afraid of certain things, and that, that's a, a struggle for you, but absolutely you can be set free from that. Jesus died to set us free from all bondage, including if you're afraid of snakes or you're afraid of dogs or any of those things. I don't want to minimize that you absolutely can be set free from those things as well. For many of us, 
the things that we're confronted with on a daily basis fall under fear of the unknown or fear of failure. Socially, fear of failure is the fear of being rejected. And that can cause us, for some of us, we're afraid of conflict, which ultimately is a fear of failure. I, I don't know how this relationship is going to work out. I'm afraid it's not going to work out. So rather than addressing this issue, I'm just not going to. Some of you can't say no. That's a fear of failure. I, I'm afraid I'm going to let you down, and this relationship is going to fail. And so rather than risk that, I'm going to kill myself saying yes to everything. Uh, for some people, again, it's this idea of fear of rejection and an unwillingness to extend themselves in any way because what if they don't like me or what if I'm not accepted what if I don't get invited to the Christmas party or whatever that looks like so rather than putting myself out there I'm just going to live a very small life with these people who I know have me I'm not going to take any risks out there with folks because I could be rejected that's all fear of failure for some of you it has more to do maybe professionally job wise what does it look like to be afraid of Failure, maybe an unwillingness to take a risk professionally to move from this thing that you're doing that's just a job to this thing that you know you would love. But there's, there's a gap there. We talked before, the, the gap between what you can do and what God is calling you to do, that's faith. If there are never any gaps and there's never any reason for you to have faith, it's not how God intended for any of us to live. And so for some of us, there's this sense we, we feel God may be calling us to do something else, calling us to step out in some way, but we're afraid of putting ourselves out there and being rejected or looking silly or looking dumb or having things not work out and other people know about that. And so rather than taking that risk, we choose to live a very small life. That's fear of failure. For others, it's fear of the unknown. Many of you spend time worrying about money. It's probably a fear of the unknown. Am I going to have enough? What if this happens? What if that happens? I got kids and they're about to hit you know, you're already, you've got 16, and then you've got 18, and you're looking at and then the wedding, and you've got all of this stuff, and you're worried about it. It's fear. I'm afraid I'm not going to have enough to take care of whatever the situation is. Some of you with children may spend a lot of time worrying about your kids. It's fear. You're afraid of how they're going to turn out. You're afraid about whether or not they're going to be safe, whether God can actually take care of them in the school or wherever it is that when they're not directly under your that's a fear of the unknown. For some people, uh, with God, there's this fear of the unknown. What's he going to call me to? If I, if I go all in with him, what's that going to mean for me? What kind of life is he going to cause me to live? We said before, I mean, some people's greatest fear is, I'm going to go all in with Jesus, and I'm going to have to move to Africa and marry an ugly woman. And that's not what, nobody wrote that in their journal in third grade, that that was the life that they wanted. And there's this fear that that's what God's going to call us to. And for some of us, we're on the other side of that, looking back, fear, I missed it. I took a wrong turn at 22. Or I took a wrong turn at 25. I took a wrong turn at 30. And I'm afraid I've missed it. And I've wrecked my life. And I have to settle for less than what God has for me because of a decision I made. Whether it was a good decision, I, was just, I just didn't know any better. And there's this fear of, have I missed God, or am I going to miss him? I, I talk to people all the time who have this fear moving forward in life. What if I make a mistake? God wants me to go right, and I go left. And so rather than doing anything, they just sit at the fork in the road. It's this paralysis by analysis. I mean, you can't figure it out. You've got to move. You don't want to live in fear of the unknown. I think for some of us as Christians in our culture, there's a fear of suffering, which is an unknown. I don't know 
any of us necessarily have suffered for the gospel. And so when we read about that in the Bible and we hear stories from other places, there's this fear of what if that happens here and does God really mean you're supposed to love him more than your family? And does God really mean you're supposed to give up all of these things? There's this fear of suffering or looking silly for the sake of the gospel. And it's unknown for us just because we've never experienced it. I don't doubt that you would rise to the occasion in that moment, but it can cause us to live small in our faith just because there's this unknown of, well, what's it going to look like? What's it feel like to, be, to have somebody criticize you because you're a Christian? What does it look like to get into a tense conversation with someone about Jesus? What is it, for some of us, we've never experienced that, and the fear of what that might be causes us to live very reserved. And again, the word for me is small, these small lives with the Lord. Fear of failure, fear of the unknown. Most likely, whatever causes you to flee. What, make, what do you run away from? What conversations do you avoid? What circumstances do you, again, run from? That's what you're afraid of. And most likely, it fits under one of those two umbrellas. And so then the question becomes, well, what do I do about that? Am I consigned to live with that? For some of us, we've lived with our fears for so long, we just figure that's the way it is. Some of you may have even convinced yourself that's the cross that you're supposed to bear. It's not true. Jesus came to set us free from that. Fear is a tool of the enemy. And the, uh, the antidote to fear, it's not bravery, and it's not courage, it's not valor, it's love. For perfect love casts out fear because fear, again, is rooted in a relational deficiency. So the more consciously aware I am of the love that God has for me, the easier it is for me to trust him and whether it's in this area of failure or in this area of the unknown or any other area where I may tend to be afraid. I don't want you to reject me. I don't. But I don't have to live in fear of that because my identity is firmly rooted in what God says about me. He has accepted me. I don't want anybody to reject me. But if you're going to reject me, it's not going to kill me because God has accepted me. And if I can live out of that, it removes this fear of Rejection. Again, it doesn't mean that I don't care whether people like me or not. I do. But I can live securely in the fact that my identity is not based on that. My identity is rooted in who I am in Jesus. If I fail, my identity is not rooted in my performance. So I can be willing to take a risk because I know that Jesus, God accepts me for who I am, not what I do. He said to Jesus, before he had done anything, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. He says the same thing about me. And about you, if you struggle with the fear of failure, you want to grow in your understanding of your acceptance to the Lord based on who you are, based on him choosing you. He adopted you. He picked you out without you having done anything for him. So because you didn't cause him to pick you, you don't have to do anything for him to keep you. He just takes delight in you as his son or as his daughter. So again, these areas where we can grow in our understanding of the love God has for us it can deliver us from fear. So practically, what does that look like? Two things I would say. You want to expose situations to light. It's just like most, a lot of kids are afraid of the dark. What do you do? You turn the light on. That's what you do. It dispels all of the fear. Then they can see there's nothing under the bed and there's nothing in the closet. That's what you do with your children when they're afraid of the dark. And the same thing is true for us. If there's situations uh, about which you're afraid, expose them to the light. Denial never, it doesn't work. If you're anxious and concerned and worried and fearful about your financial situation, burying your head in the sands, not, that's not the solution. 
We've got guys in this church who would love to talk with you about that. Or there are plenty of places outside of this church, folks, who can help you bring your situation to light and let you know, hey, this is the thing. This is where you're doing well. This is where you need to grow. But it removed the fear element. Uh, ask, letting somebody else in. Let somebody know. If you're married, let your spouse know the areas where you tend to be afraid. Most likely, it's not going to be news to them. But let them know. Allow them to help you. If you're in a small group, if you have a close friend who loves the Lord and loves you, let those people know these areas where you're afraid. That's bringing those things to the light. The enemy lives in the dark. And the other thing I would say is expose yourself to the light with a capital L. You can grow in fearing the Lord. I think it's Psalm 3411. The psalmist says, come children, let me teach you the fear of the Lord. It's not an emotional response. The shepherds had this emotional response to the angel, which was perfectly natural and it's fine. The angel says, don't be afraid. The type of fear that we're talking about, fearing God, it's not necessarily this emotional response to him. God doesn't com command us how to feel. He commands us what to do. There's an emotional element there, but it's deeper. Again, it's this idea of trust, and we grow in trust as we get to know the Lord better and then actually act on that trust. And that's when we have to overcome and confront our fears, when we have to act on this, we have to act on what we feel like God is calling us to do. And as you do that, as you take those steps, you'll find your fear of God increasing and your fear of these other circumstances decreasing. And that's where we want to be. So we're going to close with a couple of things. On the outside aisle, there are note cards. I want you to grab one and pass it down. Kids, y'all can do this too. It's fine. On the brick side, there are note cards. Once you get one, this is what I want you to do. We've got four weeks until Christmas. It's four weeks of Advent where we're talking about the arrival of Jesus. So I want you to write down an area in your life where you need Jesus to come, where you need him to arrive. It could be a relationship. It could be a decision. It could be some other type of circumstance. For you, it might seem trivial. It might seem massively significant. You don't need to write your name on it. I just want you to write the circumstance, write the situation down where you need Jesus to show up between now and December 25th. When you come forward for communion, there's a basket under this wreath, and I want you to throw your card in the basket. And we'll take some time and pray about those situations over the next month. So one... Jesus could show up in some area of your life tonight. Where is that? And write that down. We're going to close with communion. I said that we look back theologically or biblically. We look back in order to fuel hope for the future. And that's one of the things communion does. It's looking back to the cross. And that should give you hope for whatever this situation is that you're writing down. As you look back to Jesus' birth and his life and his death and his resurrection, it should give you hope. Our, my prayer is it would give you hope. It would fuel hope for you. That he can deliver you and he can make himself known in that situation. 
We also said love is the antidote to fear. It's perfect love that casts out fear. And as you come and take communion, it's a demonstration, tangible demonstration of God's love for you. If there's an area of your life where you're think, where you would say, I might not be in bondage to fear, but it, it tends to run the show on a pretty regular basis. And this, this slice of my life, my encouragement would, this, would be for you to look at that in light of your relationship with the Lord. Is that an area where you lack trust in him? I'm going to go ahead and tell you the answer is yes. It's an area where you're lacking trust in him. And the solution to that is to grasp his love for you in that situation more fully. And then the fear loses its power. And so communion for you, it's a demonstration. He loves you this much. He loved you enough to die for you. You can trust him to take care of these situations, whether it's your children or your finances or something else. We're going to have ministry teams up front. I want you to drop your card in the basket, take communion. The way we do that here, you'll break off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice. There's gluten-free bread on these first table uh, chairs if you need it. And if you would like prayer, we would love to pray with you. That whole idea of bringing the situations into light. One of the ways you do that is by allowing other people to pray with you about the situations where you're afraid. And I would say to the men particularly, you're not a sissy if there's an area of your life where you're given to fear. It just means you're a person. What makes you a sissy is being unwilling to address it. So don't do that. Address it. Allow us in. We're not, nothing magic about us. We're just guys who want to come along next to you and pray for God to give to you the benefits of, of Jesus' death and resurrection. So y'all bow your heads with me and let's pray. Bo, you can come up and we'll close with worship and communion. I want you to listen to some of this. All of the reasons the Bible says, actually it's just a handful of the reasons the Bible says, you don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live in fear. Fill in the situation, whatever that situation is. You don't have to live in fear in that situation because God is your shield. You don't have to live in fear because God has heard your voice. You don't have to live in fear because God is with you. That to me, that's highlight that one because God is with you. You don't have to live in fear because God is the one fighting for you. You don't have to live in fear because the battle is God's and not yours. You don't have to live in fear because the one who is with you is greater than the one who is with them. You don't have to live in fear because God will help you. You don't have to live in fear because God has redeemed you. You don't have to live in fear because God is going to save you from a distance. You don't have to live in fear because God has done great things. You don't have to live in fear because you're more valuable than sparrows and God takes care of them. Romans 8.15 says, You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. There's that relational element because I trust you as my father, as my dad. I'm not going to be afraid in these particular circumstances. You all get that intellectually. Moving that to your heart can be difficult. That's a spiritual work. We want to do that here this morning. So God, my prayer for me and for everyone in the room who struggles with some form of fear, fear of failure, fear of the unknown, or maybe it's something else, God, that you would deliver us this morning, that we would no longer be slaves to this spirit of fear, of running from. God, that we would be receive this spirit of sonship, of running to you, and because we're with you, because we trust you deeply, God, we can face 
failure and the unknown and whatever else it is with courage. God, I pray all the places where we have not fully grasped this perfect love that you have for us, God, that you would deepen our comprehension, deepen our understanding of, the, of how you love us personally, specifically, and individually. And out of that deep place of security, God, we would begin to live full and big and large lives, not small lives that are constrained and driven by fear. And God, my prayer for every situation written on the note card, that you would show up in those situations, that you would give us eyes to see you at work in those situations. And God, come Christmas Day, we would say there's been a difference, there's been a shift, there's been a change. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can stand and come forward. If you're helping with communion, y'all come first. Then the rest of you can come forward.